You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Registration to our 32nd annual conference, Facing Forward, is now open. Our three-day flagship event, the annual conference, is our premier learning opportunity at the cutting edge of a diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape. Learn more about the conference, the conference theme, and the conference learning pillars at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. The Forum Annual Conference is SHRM and HRCI eligible. If you're located in the Twin Cities area, we invite you to join us and other business professionals for our next Diversity Insights Breakfast called Global Citizenship, Whole World Sensibilities and Responsibilities on February 6th in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion Diversity Insights Breakfasts are in-person events offering professional skill-building opportunities in diversity, equity, and inclusion presented by scholars, thought leaders, and professionals. For more information and to register, visit forumworkplaceinclusion.org. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows, so thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again, and enjoy the show. Hello, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast, Building the Emerging Economy on a Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Platform, with presenters, economic futurist Joel Hadroff and Professor Tom Fisher of the University of Minnesota. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. Modern society is operating at a fraction of our potential. No one is to blame because we all inherited the current system based on scarcity, win-lose competition over money, and a grow-or-die business imperative. Too many people are left out of our economy today with their talent and capacities unrecognized and underutilized. This is a historic opportunity for the rising DEI movement with business and community organizations to transform disparities and disempowerment at their economic roots. This new approach empowers frontline DEI practitioners with systemic solutions and new financial tools and resources. In this podcast, we'll learn how to mobilize untapped business community wealth and productive capacity, learn social entrepreneurial design principles that drive cooperation rather than competition, and also learn why blame is the enemy of creative solutions and how to break the left versus right economic stalemate. Jill Hodroff is an inventor, social entrepreneur, and economic futurist. Professor Tom Fisher is a human-centered designer and professor at the University of Minnesota. Without further ado, I'd like to hand things over to Joel and Tom. Great. Thank you, Ben. This is Tom Fisher um, at the University of Minnesota, and I'm here with my colleague, Joel Hadroff. And for those of you who want to look me up on LinkedIn, it's J-O-E-L-H-O-D-R-O-F-F. And let's link in and carry this conversation on after the podcast. So, Joel, um, let's start by talking first, uh, before we get into design equity inclusion issues, uh, talk a little bit more about uh, how you see the emerging economy. Let's start with the economics piece first. Sure. I think uh, the metaphor that we use oftentimes is the sharing economy because it's got all the elements needed to uh, show how to mobilize currently untapped wealth. So for instance, 
the sharing economy grew uh, rapidly 10 years ago when mobile apps and social media were at a fraction of today's penetration, grew in a matter of just a few years to millions of new jobs and billions of dollars of new wealth on the table. And how that happened was uh, we monetized the excess capacity or unused productive capacity of just a couple of tiny sectors of the economy, an empty room in somebody's home or an idle car. And and the, that led to Airbnb and Uber and Lyft. Exactly. And uh, millions of jobs and uh, billions of dollars in new wealth in just a few years was quite a phenomenon. Now, the reason that that wasn't seen as a model for improving the economy was that it was filtered through the zero-sum game of win-lose competition over money. So in that situation, hotels, motels, and their employees took the hit from Airbnb while cab drivers, limo drivers, and their companies took the hit from Uber and Lyft. So what we're trying to say is, uh, if we capture the wasted wealth across the economy as a whole, empty college desks, empty airline seats, empty restaurant tables, off hours at fitness clubs, we actually have an extraordinary source of uh, distributing new wealth uh, beyond what win-lose competition is distributing today, which could easily close disparities and easily raise us all up together. So Joel, you talk a lot about wealth as opposed to money. So can you just explain that difference a little bit? Sure. Uh, so the factors of wealth production are only advancing each and every day. Technology only advances. Human skill, knowledge, and creativity only advance. Global economic infrastructure only advances. Our ability to use uh, renewable energy and materials only advances every day. So why on earth does the quality of life and standard of living for individuals, families, and communities here and around the world rise and fall with the economic fortunes of a single breadwinner, of a, of a workplace, of an industry? That's because we're chasing money to distribute wealth rather than recognizing the wealth as the valuable aspect and not the money. Another example is that money today is a speculative phenomenon. Uh, people uh, don't generally speculate in empty uh, restaurant tables, empty airline seats, empty college desks, but they speculate in money all the time. So while money's tied up in speculation, it's not available for economic development in communities and in uh, nations. And one more example, uh, we recently saw the rise of a new money, cryptocurrency, and while it exploded onto the scene, it exploded onto the scene as a speculative phenomenon. So we don't see it bringing any communities out of poverty. We don't see it uh, creating large numbers of jobs, but we do see it chasing a lot of dollars back and forth in the speculative market. So money is something you speculate with, along with the production and distribution of needed goods and services, but wealth often just sits there underutilized and could be used to close disparities, uh, increase employment in communities, and uh, better serve populations. And so you're, you mean not only the wealth, uh, physical wealth of uh, excess capacity of, in restaurants and movie theaters and everything else, you're also talking about human wealth, human capacity, human talent. And so how might that be rewarded and recognized in this emerging economy? Sure. We've, 
we talk about issuing something we call community service dollars. And let me give a few examples of how these community service dollars can be issued. And just, this is a little bit of the deeper economics, but they're always issued in combination with dollars so that they stretch dollars. They don't compete with dollars like, let's say a neighborhood currency or a cryptocurrency uh, or a barter dollar might be used to compete with the dollar. These are always stretching dollars stretching the purchasing power of individuals, families, communities, and uh, businesses. So, um, well, how would you earn community service? Right, dollars? so quite a few ways to earn. One would be volunteerism. Volunteerism is adding huge value to the economy today, but, uh, you know, many people uh, aren't benefiting personally other than feeling good about it or maybe picking up some skills but many of these people lots of people volunteer and don't need the extra uh, economic push but it would be a great way of closing disparities for many others now uh, imagine community service dollars being awarded for green activity or for wellness activity we already have uh, corporate green teams, corporate wellness teams, corporate volunteerism, these could all be stretched and extended without costing the business anything by businesses pooling their excess capacity into what we call a virtual community uh, business warehouse of excess capacity of goods and services and then uh, back in community service dollars and stretching dollars everywhere without, see, this is a win-win proposition. Nobody has to be taxed. Nobody has to give up their profit margins or, or uh, give up any of their wages in order for everybody to be better off by mobilizing excess capacity. We also think an exciting way to earn community service dollars, one, youth academic performance. These young people are preparing to contribute to society. And another example would be stay-at-home moms and dads. How come the cash economy rewards cooking, cleaning, shopping, laundry, chauffeuring, childcare, senior care, but the non-cash economy expects stay-at-home moms and dads to do all that valuable work for nothing. So this is a very level playing field we're talking about without taking anything away from anybody, mm -hmm. just mobilizing current excess capacity. Now, a lot of people are still uh, thinking that uh, you can't do anything unless you have cash, and so there's this scarcity mentality. And so um, how uh, would you actually, what would you do with your community service dollars? And how would that relate to what you have in terms of cash in your pocket? Perfect. A couple of examples of how community service dollars stretch cash for the benefit of all uh, business and community stakeholders. So imagine, so uh, for anybody who has an economics background, this term, uh, the marginal cost of production is pretty well understood. Off hours, at a restaurant is pretty much just the food because you're already paying uh, for the building, the, uh, the employees, the debt service, the management, the insurance, the marketing, those are all part of the fixed costs. And so it's what all um, discounting and, and marketing is based on. And I'll, I'll look across the economy in a second, but in a restaurant, a $20 restaurant meal in our system, might cost 12 cash and eight community service dollars. Now that's very much like the economics of two-for-one dining, senior discounts, student discounts, happy hour. So the restaurant makes money, the customer saves money, but instead of just a throwaway coupon at the end of the day or less 
cash to go around, we suddenly have this new social currency, the community service dollars, which can go on to do other good work in society. It can raise employee wages and benefits without raising cash labor costs to employers. It can go out and do green activity or wellness activity in the, in the community. We're always talking about being short of money. Well, money innovation is part and parcel of all economic history and all economic paradigm shifts, but it's not even a discipline in economics. Barter to gold coins based on smelting, to paper currency and checks based on printing, to credit cards and e-commerce based on computers and the internet. So before I get too far afield here, let me give the pricing example of off hours at a fitness club because uh, that's a, a different cost structure, uh, but also a valuable commodity. Extra restaurant tables are valuable. Off hours at fitness clubs are valuable. So a $20 weekend pass to the YWCA just costs a hot shower and a towel, basically. A $20 weekend pass might be only six cash and um, 14 community service dollars, but the Y is making as much money off of that deal as the restaurant is off of theirs. And again, everybody wins. The customer saves money, the Y has extra sales and extra cash flow, and the community has a new resource to do uh, economic development. And just so people understand how common this is, it also comes, dual currency pricing, part cash, part community service dollars, comes with certain restrictions just like cyber fares, certain flights only, uh, two-for-one dining before uh, five and after seven or no Friday and Saturday nights, uh, uh, dollar movie night on Tuesday. Uh, it, it's all very standard business practices, but we're using them creatively for economic development. And again, what would be easier than closing disparities when it's done on a win-win basis where nobody has to give up uh, part of their paycheck or anything in taxes uh, to bring everybody up together. So, so Joel, how did we end up with all this excess capacity? I think a lot of people aren't really aware of how much of it exists. So could you talk a little bit about how that happened? Sure, well, one reason it's hidden is because, uh, because we don't understand that excess competition creates excess capacity. Excess capacity is considered a business mistake. You either overproduced or you undermarketed what you have. And that's just not the case. If any business is doing well, 10 competitors jump in until they're all sucking wind. Um, and uh, so excess capacity is sort of the dirty little secret of the free enterprise system. And again, it's nobody's fault. We inherited everything we know today about money, economics, and commerce from an era of scarcity which drove, drove win-lose competition over money and a grow-or-die business imperative. And so we're still following the rules of scarcity and win-lose competition in an era where everybody could be doing very well. So Tom, let me turn around and ask you for an example out of your experience. Sure. Well, we've been doing a lot of work with people experiencing homelessness in my center here at the University of Minnesota. And one of the things that we've tried to do, although we don't have community service dollars yet, is that we have really leveraged um, uh, the ability of communities and the capacity of communities to actually address a problem that the cash economy has not been able to address. So, for example, we have a, a spinoff nonprofit called Settled, where we work with faith communities 
uh, to leverage uh, their uh, ability to um, uh, construct tiny homes for uh, people experiencing homelessness who are able to live on church uh, property because of a federal law called the Arlupa Law that allows uh, religious organizations to not have to follow zoning restrictions right. if it's on religious property. And so there's a case where you leverage the uh, 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 sort of well-being and capacity, excess capacity in a faith organization uh, to address a uh, chronic problem. We've also worked with the uh, medical community, the health system, um, which has uh, a lot of interest in reducing chronic homelessness because of the cost of the health system. And so they're using their access capacity and actually paying for housing off the savings from the emergency room uh, because <laughs> people aren't coming back into the emergency room because they're stably housed. And so this idea of uh, partnering with organizations that have interests in solving problems because it will either save them money or tap their excess capacity are two examples of how this uh, mindset might work. So uh, I want, you're reminding me that we've built a special feature into these dual currency prices that turbocharges uh, the equity part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Imagine if people with more cash financial resources paid voluntarily this is not about government mandate, which is one reason why it's beyond left versus right. It's not trickle down because this excess capacity is sitting right there, but it's also not taxed or, or uh, forced by government regulation. This is a 100% voluntary system, so we, we expect it to be uh, acceptable or even exciting uh, to people on the left and to people on the right, but imagine if Someone paid higher up the cash scale of a dual currency price, which allowed someone else to pay higher up the community service dollar side. So someone, when the, uh, the price of a $20 meal is 12 cash and uh, eight community service dollars, they go, well, you know what? I don't need a discount. In fact, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to add 10% in cash and I'm going to pay $22. Well, when the merchants already agreed to $12 cash, then we just picked up $10, which would allow someone uh, with much fewer financial resources to turn around and pay two in their cash, 10 in our cash, but 18 in community service dollars. So this is anything but a welfare model. People are paying the same price everywhere. Some are paying in more uh, cash and others are paying in more community service. That's exciting. One of the things I find appealing about this idea, Joel, is the notion that cash is this universal transactional um, uh, bill or, or, or currency, while the community service dollar idea is much more local and relational. It's less transactional and more about uh, doing work that's valued in your community and being able to um, utilize those community service dollars with people you know. Well, um, one thing that a lot of the um, community-minded people have noticed over the years is, is that there's something called money flight, that money actually leaves the community to go, let's say to Walmart uh, headquarters. Now, I'm not blaming Walmart. They didn't invent this game. They inherited it. And they're serving an extraordinary number of people with low prices. 
So that side of the equation is working fairly well, but they're also pretty well known for very modest wages and, and fairly Not poor. paying people's health benefits. Yeah, very poor benefits. And so imagine if there was another source of uh, raising people's wages that didn't come out of their bottom line or their shareholders benefit, but came right out of the excess capacity of society. And this would mean that uh, we could team up um, labor and management, government, business, and community organizations, and we could begin tackling problems. And this, interesting, leads to why DEI can take the lead in what we call a systemic solution, because actually, historically, nobody's doing it. That's why corporate social responsibility rose to being a fairly huge industry. Uh, corporate sustainability rose to being a huge industry. Corporate ethics, some would call a contradiction in terms, but rose to be uh, very prominent, big conferences. Now we see DEI on the rise, bigger and bigger conferences, more and more chief diversity, equity, and inclusion officers, and yet it's not gonna turn the dial, it's not going to move us to a new level unless we get beyond win-lose competition over money into win-win cooperation to lift everybody up. And so the opportunity to define the new playing field, to design the new ways of earning, the criteria, what's rewardable, these are the places where the uh, practitioners and leaders of the DEI community can join us, step up. Um, invent something, and let me tell you, inventing something in this day and age isn't a decades-long process. Uh, all the biggest high-tech companies weren't even here 25 years ago, and yet they're some of the biggest influencers in life today. Uh, Google and PayPal and Wikipedia and uh, Facebook um, exploded onto the scene over the power of social media and now mobile apps and that's exactly oh and one more very important idea is how can we have a faster and more efficient process than electing somebody once every four years who may or may not keep any of the promises they made so imagine this if dancing with the stars can collect millions and millions of votes in five minutes don't you think we could have electronic town hall meetings on what do communities want, what do workplaces want, um, not just you know what the board of directors and the stockholders want, but what do the rank and file members of every institution, uh, students in schools, right. workers in healthcare or in uh, banks or anywhere else, what can they all contribute to thinking through uh, an updated 21st century social, economic, and environmental covenant. And why we say covenant because there should be a spiritual component. We were once one nation under God, but that was somebody's version of uh, the right way to practice religion. What if there's a diverse and inclusive new social, economic, and environmental covenant that updated the old social contract that our founding fathers as brilliant and revolutionary as they were in the face of kings and queens were a little bit, let's say, off as land-owning, slave-owning, mm -hmm. white males. And we've inherited now a 200-year-old social contract that certainly can be updated using modern technology.
for electronic town hall meetings and for people to gather around the environment, around uh, disparities, around bringing everybody to the table and turbocharge this whole process with this new economics of capturing wasted wealth and distributing it to where it's needed. I mean, one of the things that I see uh, as a leadership opportunity for the DEI community is the very fact that it tends to be focused on communities. And so the new economy is a community economy. And um, it seems to me that as we think about the diverse communities that exist uh, in our midst, that these can be the the bases around which this new economic activity could form. These multiple currencies that you're talking about uh, could in fact be around the, the variety of communities that the uh, diversity, equity, and in inclusion community has, has recognized. It's already present in and is already providing leadership right. in, but unfortunately to date, the leadership focuses more on attitudes, you know, prejudices and, and how uh, fellow employees interact with one another, which is critical. But inside of a broken system, lifestyle changes or attitude changes just don't shift the paradigm, just don't move the dial where it needs to move to. We need to discuss the systemic roots. In fact, if I can use a quick metaphor, if we were all walking down the river together on a beautiful sunny day having a great discussion and we looked over to the river and suddenly noticed that there were babies floating down the river by the dozens or by the hundreds, most of us would naturally be shocked and would start jumping in the river and pulling out babies. Now, a few leading thinkers would run to boats and grab nets and run to bridges and begin scooping babies out by the dozens and dozens. So tell me, what's missing from this picture of saving babies that would actually be getting at the economic roots of the problem? Going upstream. Going upstream and finding out what's putting babies in the river in the first place. So if our podcast today has a central message to the DEI community, we can take the lead in shifting the conversation from simply what's wrong in our interpersonal relationships and what's wrong with wealth distribution to what's wrong with our very powerful and productive global free enterprise system that it can't close these tiny disparities. And I mean tiny, not that they're not significant, but in the face of all the wealth, look, food's an abundant, renewable resource. Global agribusiness is one of the most powerful institutions on the planet and wants more customers. The only thing standing in the way of everybody getting more of what they want, either food or customers, is money, which is nothing but a number in a computer today. And so waking up to the confusion over money and wealth and the ability of our system to be fixed in a way that raises everyone up together is both the challenge and the opportunity facing the diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioners and leadership today. So Joel, uh, let me ask you, uh, uh, let's go upstream a little bit and talk about how uh, the uh, economy can change because I think many people think that the economy is not something you can change, that the economy is just this force of nature right. and that we're stuck with it. And so your idea of, of designing new currencies, of having multiple currencies um, is, is a new idea. So could you talk a little bit about uh, how we got to where we are and what the opportunities sure. are? You know, the funny thing is, it's not a new idea at all. It's what I said. Uh, money innovation, better money design is always based on technology advancing. 
And it is part and parcel of every economic era, every economic paradigm shift. It's just off the radar screen. And not only is it what I mentioned, barter to gold coins based on smelting, the paper currency based on printing. Obviously, I think this needs repeating. Yeah. <laughs> to credit cards and e-commerce based on computers and the internet. And this sort of uh, inadequate or false start, let's say, of, of cryptocurrency on the blockchain, uh, it could be revolutionized and do a better job. But there's an accelerating pace uh, of what could be called human social evolution. In fact, that's a phrase uh, that comes from a book called A White Hole in Time by a physicist named Peter Russell. And what he said was, uh, it took about 14 billion years to get us up out of the ooze walking around in tribes. And, and uh, interestingly, um, the party really got going after that because the whole agricultural era lasted about three to 5,000 years and it was driven by barter and gold coins. Again, made possible by uh, metal casting and smelting. But then the whole industrial era, driven by paper currency and checks, lasted only three to 500 years. Now we're in a high-tech global era that was completely mature in about 30 to 50 years. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if we figured out the next generation of money to raise us all up together, it could be upon us like, well, Arab Spring in the modern world, no guns needed, just uh, you know, the market uh, adopting the next great innovation. And so that's just important to understand that this isn't a new idea, but nobody's come up with a better money design uh, to stretch the dollar, and that's been part of it. You know, many radical activists want to replace the dollar, replace free enterprise. What I try to suggest is two things to my radical friends. One is that um, the, uh, the blame that's been running the show is just not going to get the job done. And so, by blame, you mean, mean what? Well, blame the rich, okay. blame the poor, blame the foreign competition. Blame the corporations. Yeah, blame the big corporations, blame the military, blame the left, blame sure. the right. You know, when you're busy blaming, you're actually not busy fixing. Mm -hmm. And so, and it, that's aligned with uh, Buckminster Fuller's quote, you don't change things by fighting the old model. You build a new model that makes the old model obsolete. And so that's what we see today with the rise of um, the internet, the rise of Facebook, uh, Wikipedia beat out um, Microsoft's then in progress encyclopedia, despite the fact that Microsoft had all the money, all the head start, all the technology, Wikipedia just had a bunch of eager volunteers and they rolled right over the Microsoft model. Again, I'm not putting down Microsoft or Walmart or anybody, they're all operating inside a broken win-lose system and uh, they go home and they're as stressed out at, at night as anybody else uh, thinking about you know the future of their enterprise and the obligation of their stakeholders because um, institutions crash all the time. We see that all the time. So the um, give me the question again and then yeah. <laughs> this can be taken out by uh, Ben's team. Well, well, I think that let's also talk about this idea that when we think about money, we think about it as this object, as these tokens, as coins and as bills. And it strikes me that one of the things that's happened with uh, the, in the digital era is now money is really just 
numbers on uh, spreadsheets right. that are getting moved around. So could you talk about that? Well, that reminds me of what the other thing I wanted to say about what's not working and what needs repair. So by confusing money and wealth and paying all the attention to the money, let's go back to 2008 for a minute. I know a bunch of you in the listening audience have seen the movie The Big Short, which is an excellent elevator pitch for our work. Why? Because in 2008, the movie ended explaining $5 trillion in wealth disappeared. That's just in the United States, and then it rolled out across the globe. Uh, 8 million people lost their jobs, 6 million families lost their homes, and we know that countless people lost summer all of their life savings and innumerable businesses went under. Well, if $5 trillion in wealth actually disappeared, name for me one thing that disappeared. No technology, no global economic infrastructure, no human skills, knowledge or creativity, no raw materials and energy, no products and services. So if nothing in the world actually disappeared, what happened? Well, the technical explanation is that valuations fell, what you might expect to get for your stock, for your home, for your company, but that's phantom money. If nothing in the physical world disappeared, it means that money's running the show and causing all that suffering to human beings, to families, to communities, to businesses, suffering that nobody wanted. You know, the rich weren't calling for an economic crash. But this is what happens when your money system is based on tokens instead of ledgers. So what do I mean by ledgers or ledger economics? Well, one great example is global financial bookkeeping. Or uh, Tom has often pointed out, the University of Minnesota doesn't run checks back and forth between departments all the time or paper currency or anything. These are just accounting uh, notations in ledgers. And interestingly, from our point of view, the global loyalty rewards industry, a huge, huge industry, which takes the excess capacity of businesses and turns it into uh, an incentive for people to buy more. Well, obviously, we're talking about incentives for other constructive behaviors besides consumer spending, where whoever spends the most money gets the most rewards, not a very level playing field from a DEI point of view, not a very high value consumer spending from an environmentalist point of view, and 9,000 competing currencies is not a very practical economic system from a, 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 a organizational point of view, but all this is to say we already have running ledger systems that work day and night. The whole global visa system is a ledger system. It's not subject to inflation and recession. It doesn't have economic crashes. Visa went on just fine during the 2008 downturn. Um, countries can be at war with each other and merchants and customers are still taking each other's visa products. And so we have to understand that this, this obsession with the token, that the dollar or money descended from gold coins at one point, which descended from things that were being bartered. So it actually used to be about things, but money today is just about units of measure and exchange. Well, it's, that's where the mischief comes. We've got plenty of goods and services to distribute and no money to distribute them with. So again, closing disparities, creating diverse, equitable, and inclusive commerce is really about waking up to the difference between money and wealth, the mischief that comes from focusing on the tokens and not on the needs of people or the ability of businesses to produce wealth. We're way advanced in that, but we're way primitive in money. We have not updated money economics and commerce 
we've, we've made it electronic, but it's still a scarce token. And don't you think in some ways this is how there are some who want to control cash and control money, maintain inequality? I mean, to me, one of the interesting paradoxes of our time is the very moment that diversity, equity, inclusion has become a much bigger uh, issue, topic, lots of interest, a lot of people uh, you know, concerned about it and working on it. And at the very same time, we have more and more inequality going on. And it strikes me that the greater inequality, even as DEI becomes mainstream, right. comes from the fact that there are those who want to control this scarce commodity of cash and um, maybe resisting uh, this new ledger economy well, that you're talking about. Yeah, I don't think there's resistance to this because our work's not even on the radar screen yet. We're, we're playing true. for a 25-year overnight success story. Uh, some other podcasts we can go into how many things we've tried here in the Twin Cities and elsewhere. But here's the bottom line. There's no conspiracy against everybody doing well. There's a broken win-lose system and it permeates everything. Politics is designed today to be win-lose. One person gets the seat, one party's in charge. Uh, there's nothing wrong with expanding who's at the table, whose voice gets heard, whose opinion gets considered, and then we make decisions. We have all the technology to uh, bring everybody to the table and not everybody on every decision. I don't want the neighborhood voting on my heart surgery and I don't believe everybody is qualified to vote on how to run a global economy. On the other hand, if you want to come to a meeting in your neighborhood and say you'd rather have another childcare center than another coffee shop and the resources are there through community service dollars, that's a perfect place to vote. And uh, so people caring about and wise about the environment should help set up policies there. People caring about and wise about healthcare should help set up policies there but it shouldn't be dominated just by money. Right. Just like politics is overly dominated by money, when it should be uh, a highly informed, well thought out cooperative effort to solve problems. And we can't do it, not because of human nature. You look at babies and they're playful and cooperative and they don't bring a lot of prejudice into the world. And um, you look at our adult system and uh, it's all win-lose fighting. And again, I don't think there are the right or the wrong players today. Everybody got socialized into a broken system. Sure, and don't you think some of that has to do with the scale at which we interact? It strikes me uh, from the work we do here that when we work in real communities and solve problems, all of these kind of win-lose uh, uh, issues tend to disappear. I mean, the work we're doing with people experiencing homelessness, we're working with very liberal churches and very conservative churches. They probably don't agree at all on their theology, uh, but they... Or on economics. Or, or on economics. But they do agree that they can work together to deal with people experiencing homelessness. And so, you know, when we... It seems to me that when you operate at the scale of communities and around problems, a lot of these divisions and ideas of scarcity tend to go away, but, this, but that the, the larger the scale, you tend to get these, um, the, the greater divisiveness that you're well, talking about. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point, um, that people do well when they pay attention to our common humanity and work on an issue. Now, you could work on a global scale. You could work on global hunger and have all the players at the table wake up to the fact that there's food as an abundant renewable right. resource, there's global infrastructure for delivering 
Anything that someone can pay for can be there the next day. We can have Levi jeans in Somalia tomorrow if somebody orders them online. So the point isn't uh, scale, it's human beings coming together out of our humanity right. and not out of our so-called competing financial interests. And the, the place that we can, can look to, just as you're saying, for, to be optimistic, the place that people tend to come together is at the community level. But we've got the United Nations right. 2030 goals that give us a nice agenda. Well, now we have a funding mechanism for, and again, I can't say this enough, for the DEI community to step up and take the lead because this is not a happening conversation and yet all these tools are at our fingertips. So, Joel, one of the things that you talk about in terms of the um, uncompensated, unrecognized, unrewarded work that people do is including volunteerism or even raising children or doing well at school. Now, there are some people who might say, well, you should just do that anyway. You shouldn't, you shouldn't have to be paid to raise your child. Um, but it strikes me that there is also uh, a great deal of value in the economy for raising children or doing well in school. And so um, how can money, how can this new dual currency uh, not be so much just about what you can get for it, what you can consume with it, but also just a recognition sure. of doing something that is good for all of us? You know, people bring their values with them wherever they go. Yeah. So um, lots of homemakers have been pushed out into the economy so that they can pay the bills. Right. You know, a funny thing happened at the end of World War II, which by the way, we went from the depths of the depression to full war production in 18 months, 75 years ago with none of today's technology. And you're telling me we can't figure out how to get communities out of poverty here and around the world today. And then after the war, we rebuilt Germany uh, and Japan, or Europe and Japan, literally overnight. Uh, so people's uh, resignation about being able to solve economic problems isn't really grounded. It's just that the broken system has convinced us that the best we can do is a little bit of volunteerism. But the point I'm making is if you go back to the uh, end of the war, the white men were off fighting the war. Women and people of color were running the factories and the agriculture back at home. Now, what could have happened in a logical system, and we didn't talk enough about the system being human made and then human impacted, but that's all there is. We just, we treat it like a force of nature. We, recession and, and depression and, and inflation, these are all beyond our control and they're all based on human nature. Nothing could be more baloney. But imagine if at the end of World War II, instead of pushing the women out of the workforce and making second class citizens out of people of color would serve their community just right. like everybody else. And served in the war too. Absolutely. What if instead of uh, half the people doing the work before and during the, or during the war and then pushing them into the home so that half the people were doing the work after the war, we had created a 20 hour work week back then and everybody did their share of the work, got their share of the income, and got their greater share of leisure. I mean, it is so crazy how today workplaces are more and more stressful because they're chasing money at the 24 7, 365 pace of technology rather than letting technology do the work. We've never had the good sense to say, 
okay, the men came home from the war, let's share the work, let's share the housework, let's share the leisure. What does that mean to share the leisure? It means more family time, more community time, more personal growth time, more religious or spiritual time, uh, more sports time for the sports nuts, more hunting time for the hunters. I mean, it's just crazy that people are even giving up their vacation these days to play the money game, not the high quality of life game that's possible. I got one more example of that, which I think is an extraordinary quality of life argument for coming together as a society and solving these things on a win-win basis rather than fighting over money on a win-lose basis. Two banks merge, two healthcare systems merge, two colleges merge, two nonprofits merge. Now in today's system, half the everybody had the same skills the day before the merger, but what happens? Half the people lose their jobs and are now economically insecure and running around trying to figure out how to take care of their family. The other half are working longer and harder and looking over their shoulder for their pink slip. That's stressful. That leads to addictions. That leads to acting out. That leads to going postal. It's just so ridiculous, the growing stress of how this works. What would be a sensible way for it to work? Everybody had the same skills. None of the wealth disappears. What disappears in a merger is paychecks. Mm -hmm. So what do we do instead? We use community service dollars to make up the purchasing power gap, but we share the available work among all the people who had the right skills before the merger. And then we share the greater leisure and we, sh and we close disparities. You know, one of the big disparities isn't uh, racial or gender or GLBTQ. <laughs> one of the big disparities is employed and unemployed. Right. People right. on welfare and, you know, people, people with normal jobs. Or overworking. Actually. Way overworking. Right. And so when DEI steps beyond the individual or subsector experience and looks at the whole systemic experience, it's going to be so empowered to unite people around a universally high quality of life without raising taxes. UBI, universal basic income, is a big conversation in society. Well, that's because people are scared if it comes out of taxes, I'm going to get taxed to pay for some freeloader. Well, what if everybody is just gets a chance to get in on the work, get in on the paychecks, and get in on the greater leisure. And you and I are big Walden 2 fans, and we know that shortening the work week was well-described in Walden 2. Ledger economics was well-described in Walden 2. Supply and demand in labor was well-described in Walden 2. So we haven't invented all of this. We've modernized a lot of it. We've been creative outside-the-box thinkers about money design. But, but ledger thinking about money has been around for a long time. Yeah. And one of the other things that I find appealing about the dual currency idea is that a lot of people are, I think, afraid of what do I do with all this leisure time if I work 20 hours a week? <laughs> well, but what it does is it actually encourages people to do something of value in your community. Because if you actually, instead of just sitting around watching soap operas and actually do something of the purposeful in your community, you'll get rewarded for it. So it's another kind of work. Yeah, and it's really just a bridge from a win-lose competition over money economy to just a thoughtfully designed economy. Mm -hmm. You know, people got really turned off by the notion of state planning because it looked like forced collectivization and Stalinist gulags and all this stuff. But in fact, um, 
planning or design is at the heart of every functional system. And while technology has brought huge advances in many aspects of our lives, it hasn't seemed to put a dent in poverty, which has been growing. It hasn't solved healthcare across right. the board. And in fact, you know, we know that wellness is the key to good health and that's healthy diet, uh, moderate exercise, uh, a reduction of stress through meditation and yoga. These are very inexpensive fixes for a very broken, highly expensive healthcare model. And so this is a path, a way of funding uh, everybody's better health, not just poor people's better health. Right. And I also think that some of this is just how people get stuck into thinking in very rigid ways. Again, you know, the work we do with people experiencing homelessness, the, the homeless population themselves have asked the question that here I am sleeping on the street and across the street is a empty office building all night, fully guarded, heated, cooled, serviced, uh, and I can't get into it because we call it an office building, and so I sleep on the streets. Now, it strikes me that there's simply a, a missing incentive here for that, that office building owner to allow people to utilize it at night. A portion of it, because office buildings have more and more empty space, empty. not even right. filled offices. But that's, again, windless competition over money said, oh, let's see, that's a hot market office buildings, or that's a hot market, high-end uptown uh, right. uh, the apartment buildings with huge amenities. Well, then we overbuild for it, and then we have excess capacity. Right. And so, you know, how do we make it possible for everybody to be housed, housed and fed right. and a good right. education? I mean, my God, it's so obvious that college desks are empty more than they're full. Classrooms are empty more than they're full. And yet a student has to walk away with a college degree and a lifetime of debt. Right. You know, that's not supply and demand. That's, you know, fake high prices. Right, right. And I also think some of this is, is uh, lowering the bar and creating much more access. I mean, as I sit in uh, lecture halls and they're half empty, I'm thinking, what about the other half of these seats? Why isn't the public allowed to come in and also listen to the lecture if they'd like to? Because they're busy working two, three, and four jobs. Right. That's one thing. So I think you know, there'll be a, a renaissance, you might say, an explosion of uh, innovation and learning and uh, healthy lifestyles. I mean, the idea that parents are separated from their kids the majority of the week and their kids might get sick and get sent in a taxi to a clinic. I mean, there's so much dysfunction based on chasing money versus asking, and this is a design question, right? Asking what is an optimal way to live as human beings? In fact, this is what I'll end with, and I think it might be nice for you to comment, Tom, on things that excite you about the DEI movement. Mm -hmm. What's inspirational in that for you? But I'm gonna say, I was inspired as a young person by this idea of, of uh, increasing our human potential, that we maybe operate at five or 10%, and to raise it just a few percentage points, you know, if you're operating at five and you raise it to, five more to 10, well, that's, that's doubling, you know, your capacity or your ability. So uh, the story in Stranger in a Strange Land is that a, uh, a human baby born to an earth colony on Mars experiences that the colony died out and this baby was raised by Martians. Well, Martians weren't a uh, 
15,000 year old race, they were a 15 million year old race. So they were highly evolved. They had what we would think of as superpowers. And when this human came back to earth uh, via a subsequent uh, Mars expedition, he found himself a stranger in a strange land. Why? Because through these highly evolved Martian eyes, human beings were crazy. We were primitive. We worshiped money. We killed each other over religion and politics, and we polluted the very bodies and planet that life itself depended on. So I was always influenced by the idea that we are what we're socialized to be. So if we're socialized to be greedy humans, we're going to be greedy humans. But I was much more interested in these, this guy who was socialized to be a highly evolved Martian, compassionate, superpowered, and out to make a difference in the world. So he was teaching the Martian language and the Martian religion to uh, his fellow human beings and trying to help evolve the earth. So that's, I, my passion is getting us beyond this primitive stage of fighting one another over money, religion, politics, and all this nonsense and raising up the whole human race together. So what excites, and so there's nobody more, uh, in need of inclusion than a Martian. (laughs) All right. What's, what's exciting about DEI for you? Well, you know, I, I work in an institution where we have, uh, students from 130 different countries here. And I find myself constantly learning from, from students from other cultures about what they value and what they consider to be a good life. And I'm always struck at how so many other cultures view quality of life uh, as a, a much higher goal than we do. We tend to think about, it's all about standard of living, how much money you make. We, we in the United States tend to um, you know, evaluate ourselves about what our income is. And, uh, and yet I am constantly learning about, in many ways, older cultures that are in many ways wiser than our culture, uh, where there is a sense of uh, there being other more important values that are more about the issue of wealth than about cash. And so when I listen to you, Joel, talk about the fact that we have to rediscover the incredible wealth that, as you say, we are swimming in uh, as we are chasing cash and in search of cash is, is, I think, a lesson that we have to learn not only from Martians, but from you know students from uh, you know other countries uh, that understand this better than we do, or from communities that are much more uh, solidarity based. Exactly, like they're bartering, or exactly. they're, they're simply volunteering and helping one another. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, but Uber and Lyft didn't invent that type of ride sharing in the black community. It was called livery drivers, and every day they were outside the grocery store helping people who needed. A ride at a fraction of the uh, cost of a taxi. Right, and this is also the idea that in many communities the family is an economic unit, and there's a lot of sharing that goes on. We don't we don't charge our grandmother uh, money to go, as you say, have Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, we uh, at at that scale we uh, uh, are very much in a sharing economy. And so, how can what works in families scale up to communities? So I lied. I do want to cover one more thing, and that is that um, within a decade, uh, this coming year, 2020, um, millennials are going to be hitting 50% of the workforce. And within the decade, they'll be the overwhelming majority of the workforce. And they've been getting a bad rap because values-wise, when they say, uh, I'd rather make uh, 50000 and 
live at home with my parents, but do something that interests me, something that I love, something that makes a difference in the world versus make $100,000 doing something that's boring or destructive of the environment or whatever. They are showing vision and leadership. And I, I just want to put in a plug, uh, a young African-American woman, millennial, uh, named Daniel Schutz did a TEDx talk out of uh, Denver, Colorado, the Mile High TEDx, uh, titled Millennials Were Born to Lead, Here's Why, that blew my mind and uh, that makes me extremely hopeful for the future. And she, she simultaneously spoke about diversity, equity, and inclusion and millennials. And this is the era of the four-generation workplace, boomers, Xers, millennials, and Gen Zers. And in fact, that, that being united in the workplace is going to force us to figure out how to work with people who aren't the same as us. Instead of it being a power struggle, it right. can be an extraordinary DEI experience, and we have just the economics to turbocharge it. So, great. Tom, yeah, thanks. thank you, Joel. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. This was great. And all of you, here's a reminder on how to get in touch with us. So you can write to me at tfisher at umn.edu. That's T-F-I-S-H-E-R at umn.edu. And uh, look me up on LinkedIn, Joel Hodroff, J-O-E-L-H-O-D-R-O-F-F. Or you can email me at joel. J-O-E-L at script, S-C-R-Y-P dot I-O. And the website's down for rebranding, but script is a takeoff on S-C-R-I-P, the first paper money that was actually backed by products and services instead of by gold or debt. All right. Thanks. Uh, you're a great audience, and yeah, we look forward to connecting in the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Joel and Tom, for that forward-facing and, dare I say, revolutionary podcast. Um, as someone who personally spends a lot of time volunteering myself and cares about uh, society in general, I, would, I really would love to and look forward to seeing this model and this movement really take off. Um, as um, Joel and Tom just shared, if you'd like to contact them, feel free to email or connect via LinkedIn um, and feel and please listen to uh, you can listen to this podcast on our website forum on workplaceinclusion.org backslash podcast and you can also sub subscribe subscribe you can also subscribe to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Archer and also I'm sorry, Anchor Anchor <laughs> we look forward to seeing you at the upcoming forum on workplace inclusion conference where we can take these conversations deeper yes that We'll, the conference this year will be March 10th through 12th at the Minneapolis Convention Center. And like Joel said, we look forward to seeing you there. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. 
Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. An Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the local arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.